0: Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 534, From Ecstasy to Ordinary. Why was Jesus ticked off at an entire generation? How can we share in the fellowship of his suffering? And what on earth can we learn from Peter paying taxes by finding a coin in a fish's mouth? We're going to learn these things and more as we jump right back in where we left off in Matthew chapter 17.
1: Hi, good to be together again on what is episode 34 in this very deep dive uh, into the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we spent the entire time on eight verses in the, in the transfiguration. But now, we're making a very significant shift. We're moving from the mountain to the valley. We're moving from the, the transcendent to the concrete, uh, from the eternal to the immediate, from from the ecstasy of, of glorious encounter— to the ordinary. And also, as we're going to see, Matthew takes us from the exalted Son of God to the suffering Messiah. And you know, this is part of our journey of following Jesus, to, to find him in both the moments of, of revelation and also of learning to recognize him uh, in the midst of the everyday. I said last week that we must be careful not to fall into either of two extremes one always looking for the next spiritual high but neither do we want to fall into a place where we become dull or even lose our hunger for encountering Jesus you know my years of pastoring i was very aware of this uh, of this pull between the two you know that the 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 church can uh, can either settle into very little expectation. We, this is how we do church, the same week by week. And this leads to a small gospel. But also, we have to be careful because we can find ourselves trying to, to build the church by seeking to go from, from one amazing event or service to another. Taken as a whole... Chapter 17 gives us some terrific guidelines for following Jesus, both on the mountain and in the valley. So let's pick it up where we left off last week at verse 9, chapter 17, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So he, they're coming down the mountain, and he says, now don't tell anybody about what you've seen until after I've been raised from the dead. This is, this is the last time Jesus commands the disciples to remain silent. But this time, he's, there's a timeline on it. He, only until after the resurrection. Why did he do this? Well, I think there's a couple of possibilities. One, if they were to to tell everyone what had happened on the mountain, their story would would stir up the idea uh, that Messiah has come, but the Messiah they expected was a political, triumphant Messiah that was going to get rid of the Romans. And he didn't want that happening. Secondly, without the sign of the resurrection— and you might recall earlier, he called that the sign of Jonah, that, that premature disclosure would, would create false expectations. And, oh, it's happening right now. And that would be followed inevitably by disillusionment. You see, the crowds expected, and, and Matthew's going to develop this again and again, but they were expecting a victorious Messiah. And so they would never understand a suffering Messiah. Verse 10, the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So why did the disciples ask this question? Well, it's that this was a question that Jewish leaders in their time and throughout all of the first century, they kept pressing this question to the, the believers, the church, the Christians. They said, well, we haven't seen Elijah, so he can't be Messiah. Now, <clears throat> the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, had just seen Elijah up on the mountain. And they knew that the scribes taught, in fact, insisted that Elijah must come before the Messiah. Now, Some commentators suggest that Elijah's appearance on the mountain was the fulfillment of of this expectation. But I think that's not very likely, because I think the meaning of the disciples' question goes a lot deeper. See, Elijah was supposed to restore all things. He was supposed to bring peace and order. Well, if that's true, how could the Messiah be executed In such a restored environment. Well, I think this begins to to get unwrapped for us in the next couple of verses. Jesus replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Well, there's several points to make in this really important passage. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't say that the scribes are wrong. He, he agreed. Elijah must come. They're correct in their teaching. But the problem is they have failed to recognize when their prediction had been fulfilled already. So how did John the Baptist, Elijah, how did he set everything right? by pointing to Jesus Christ, the one who brings peace, the one who brings fulfillment of God's purpose. In Matthew, it's interesting, Jesus identifies John specifically as Elijah twice. In no other gospel does this happen, not even once. Now, The scriptures speak of two Advents. We're about to come into Advent season, which which simply means two comings of Christ. The first and second coming. The Gospels tell of the first Advent, his first coming, and they point ahead prophetically, along with other New Testament writers, to the second Advent, to when Christ will come again. Now, the Early church father Christostom had this to say. The prophets mention both Advents. Of the one that is second, they say Elijah will be the forerunner. John was the forerunner of the first, John, whom Christ also called by the name Elijah, not because he was Elijah, but because he was fulfilling Elijah's ministry. For just as Elijah will be the forerunner of the second advent, so John was of the first. If anybody ever tries to get into a discussion with you, all oh, this proves some kind of reincarnation. No, it doesn't. He fulfilled, as Christostom said, he was fulfilling Elijah's ministry. Now, <clears throat> the scribe's interpretation of Elijah's coming was largely based on the last two verses of Malachi. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Likewise, or rather, otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So, this, this raises a question right away. What is the curse that will come if everything is not set right, because you see that key conjunction, otherwise, sorry, an old English teacher here, otherwise, or your King James says, lest I come. So what's the curse that if things are not set right? Well, I think the answer is found in John's gospel. Remember John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb will take the, the promised curse upon himself. And at this point, it's like I can't help but take us to one of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. So this is a well-known passage, Isaiah 53, 3-5. to five. Speaking of the Lamb of God, who takes the curse away by taking it on to himself. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sin. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Books and books and books have been written about this passage. By the way, I read to you this time from the New Living Translation. It's really important that you look at different translations for this this passage. So that is exactly how he takes the curse. That's That's how we avoid the otherwise. So this is why Jesus must come as the suffering Messiah. Elijah had already come. They didn't recognize him. Uh, Elijah as John the Baptist was as we know was executed. Both John and Jesus were unrecognized in their time. And and by not being recognized almost inevitably they were misunderstood and that led to being mistreated. God's way of working in the world is seen in both Elijah and John and Jesus. It is the way of suffering power. You see how packed these few verses are? Matthew is brilliant. He's a brilliant writer. He's a brilliant theologian. That's why we take our time on these things, because it's so rich and it's so deep. So again, Matthew reminds us that suffering and rejection by the world are not something strange. As, as he says here, they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man is about to suffer at their hands. This is because of the fallen nature of the world. We are in a world that is infected and controlled by what? Paul calls the principalities and powers, the powers that be. They have got into the very fabric of this fallen world. That's why these things happen. That's why we should not be at all surprised when suffering comes. You know, we many of us love to quote. I went to a church that they quoted Philippians 3.10 all the time. That I might know him. But the full verse says this that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Folks, the early church lived with such a strong vision of the age to come, of our eternal destiny, that this vision, this confidence, this uh, assurance, because of this, they were able to—, to Keep present sufferings, and they suffered. They were able to keep them in perspective. Philippians 3.8, Paul said this, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, we're back to Peter's struggle from chapter 16. And he said, "This surely this will never happen to you. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Peter could embrace a victorious Christ, a victorious Messiah, but he couldn't even fathom uh, a suffering Messiah. But this is such a strong theme throughout John's, or rather Matthew's gospel, the glorious Son of God and the suffering Son of Man. And we're going to be confronted again and again and again with this seeming paradox that's going to take us right through to the climax of Matthew's gospel. Well, let's move on to where they come down and they encounter people gathered around a boy who they can't get healed. They can't set him free. Starting at verse 14, When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, Jesus and knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. So, as we've told you before, Matthew's account is is more bare bones than, than Mark's. If you want to read a much fuller account, go to Mark chapter 9. Um, this one, Matthew's, is less than half the length. And it's not focused so much on the miracle itself, but the lesson about faith. Uh, Mark's account includes the scribes are arguing with the disciples when Jesus comes down the mountain. Jesus asks the Father, how long has this been happening? The very fact that he has to ask touches on his humanity, which we'll look at in a minute. All things can be done for the one who believes. And the Father says, I believe. Forgive my unbelief. And then Jesus, in, in Mark's account, when they said, why couldn't we do it? He says, this kind can only come out through prayer. By the way, no authoritative uh, translation says uh, uh, prayer and fasting. Fasting was an interpolation added uh, a long time later. Okay, so at the top of the mountain, we witnessed Jesus coming into contact with the glory of his Father. Now we're in the valley and Jesus comes into contact with, direct contact with the pain of humanity. So now we find ourselves, like Jesus and the three disciples, confronted with the almost jolting contrast between the mountain and the valley experience. I want you to notice something. Ever since um, Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. From there on in, the story is moving us into the future. It's on what is to come, not on the present situation. It's after Peter's declaration that Jesus tells them what is going to come, what awaits them in Jerusalem. That both his but but going through his suffering, his his vindication and glory is going to follow. Um that the mountain experience has lifted the disciples out of the present situation and given them a taste of future glory. We talked a lot about that last week. But now, suddenly, they're brought back to the present as they find their fellow disciples in difficulty. They can't be on focusing on what's going to come. It's right now. It's in their face. Um... You know, from, from the mountain of Revelation, they're now in a scene of demonic oppression and human weakness. Jesus has both of those in front of him, the, the, the boy who's demonically oppressed and confronted with the human weakness. And it's interesting. He comes down the mountain and he, he's just, he says, how long do I have to put up with you? There's a clear parallel here. That Matthew is fully aware of. The parallel goes, takes us all the way back to Exodus twenty twenty one, where Moses comes down the mountain with the, the stone tablets, the revelation of God, and he's confronted with the sin and weakness of Israel, and he's so frustrated he throws them down and smashes them. The parallel is clear and obvious, and Matthew was very intentional. Verse 14 and 15, when they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before Jesus, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, he suffers terribly, and often falls into the fire and often into the water. I want to, today, once again, one of the continued themes and purposes here is to help us read with a greater depth. We've talked about the, the literal reading. Uh, the author's intent, the moral reading, what what we can learn about how to follow Jesus, and the spiritual or water to wine uh, meaning. And one of the ch- early church fathers, Origen once again uh, takes us deeper than the literal reading of these verses. Here's what Origen says about these verses. The matters regarding the epileptic should be investigated. In other words, go deep. The disease attacks those who suffer from it at considerable intervals, during which time he who suffers from it seems in no way to differ from the man in good health. Then, as if by an epileptic fit, they seem to be seized by their passions and are cut down. Now, here's the spiritual reading. They are seized by their passions and are cut down from standing up, and they imbibe lusts Stemming from the deception of this age, such people are epileptics spiritually, having been thrown down by the spirits of evil, the powers that be, in the heavenly places. And he quotes uh, Ephesians 6.12, which says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood; it's the powers that be, as I said, that have have infiltrated and and absolutely affected uh, our society, our, the, this world. Verse sixteen, Father's still speaking to Jesus, and he says, "And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him." It's really interesting to me, that Matthew does not shy away. In fact, he almost puts a spotlight on the continued failures of the disciples throughout his gospel. For example, remember in the feeding of the 5,000, it begins with their failure to recognize Jesus' power or his compassion to provide for the crowds. Their fear in the midst of the storm, when Jesus is walking on the water and And he says, why did you doubt? Wanting to send the Canaanite woman away, remember? They couldn't cope because, remember, she brought her, her daughter to be set free. Their misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying about leaven, it's almost comical. He says, beware the leaven. He says, is it because we forgot to bring the bread? Why does Matthew record these things? I think there's three reasons. One, to show us that failure does not disqualify us. Folks, the enemy lies to us about this. You're disqualified. You failed. You messed up. That's it for you. Secondly, to show us that, in fact, failure is the path to growth. One of the things that I, I teach on, on our um, Doing the Gospel series— is that the willingness to take risks will determine our advancement in kingdom ministry. We're only going to grow to the degree we're willing to take risks. There's no way around it. You take risks. And if you don't fail sometimes, that isn't a risk. You know, you you see Tim on this podcast. He and I used to ski uh, when we lived in Canada. Every Monday night, the two of us, and we would just determined. I wasn't going to let any son of mine beat me and he wasn't going to let his dad beat him. So we were right on the edge. But you know something? We always felt good when we were in the car going home if we'd both had a real good fall because it meant we were growing. We were coming up to the edge of our ability. So I believe that failure is a path to growth and not something to be afraid of. And the third reason Matthew shows us their failure is that our failure pushes us back to the beginning. By that I mean back to the Beatitudes. We talked a lot about this in in the first number of weeks of this series. That again and again, what goes on for us, our failures, our misunderstandings, pushes us back. Oh, Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Okay, so Matthew doesn't shy away and neither should we. Verse 17, this is a really interesting verse, just jumps at us. Jesus answered, O faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? bring him here to me first and foremost don't spiritualize this matthew is showing us the humanity of christ the, the disciples failure and lack of true faith is is painful to him i think he's feeling let down by the disciples he's acutely aware that he's not going to be walking this earth very much longer I think Matthew, remember, is writing to the church a generation after these events. And I think he's once again pointing the church to the reality of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. We've just seen Jesus manifest in his divinity. Now we see as a man, he must deal with very human issues. And he's not immune to their emotional impact. When Lazarus died, he wept. And here, it's just like like he's had it up to here. Fully man and fully God. Jesus' outburst is addressed, interesting, not to the Father, but to a whole generation. A whole generation. Let me just go back to that. You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer should I put up with you? Ten times in Matthew's gospel, he records Jesus referring to this generation. Give you a few examples. Chapter 11. Verse 16, to what will I compare this generation? Is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. 1219. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. By the way, he says that more than once. Uh, 1241, the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And this focusing on the on the generation, on the failure of Israel the generation of Israel culminates as we're going to see in several weeks from now in in his prophetic chastisement there's no other word for it chapter 23 34 to 36, Therefore I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come upon this generation the fact that jesus is castigating is 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 admonishing an entire generation reveals how cosmically and how socially he sees the human predicament you know we are so enmeshed in our culture and our culture is influenced and controlled by the powers that's why he called the generation perverse The Greek word means to distort. So if we look here, Jesus is rebuking the Father. It's clear in Mark's account. He's rebuking the disciples for their lack of faith. And he's rebuking Israel. And he's saying you're accountable because you've had so much given to you, Israel. Now there's a warning here for the church in our day. Not to be unbelieving or faithless. And not to be perverse or distorted. St. Hilary, another church father, he makes a point about this passage. Because the law was soon to be transcended at the cross, Jesus says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you? Those who did not have faith were going to lose the very law they had. Their confidence was in a law, and they were going to lose all of that. And then he says, "Bring him here to me." And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was cured instantly. By the way, the very same words, identical words with feeding of the of the five thousand. He bring them here to me, uh, the the loaves and the fish. So in this little verse here, what we see is that whatever our need is, whether it's material or spiritual, or emotional, Matthew is telling us that Jesus has exactly what we need. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. And and it's interesting that it was private. That's pretty normal, isn't it? After failure, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I tell you, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move And nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I'll bet you've noticed that in the mission discourse in chapter 10, the disciples had already been given by Jesus power and authority to cast out demons. They already had that. So what's happening here? Jesus says that the reason is their little faith. Now, the, the Greek word refers more to poverty of faith than the size of their faith. Even small faith, faith as a mustard seed, is enough to be effective. But poor faith is ineffective. Well, what's poor faith? Well, I think there's a clue here for us in James when he warned against being double-minded. James 1, 6 to 8, but we must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, as I, as I teach in various places about uh, healing in the name of Jesus, I talk about various foundations, foundational principles, and I said the, the, the underlying principle of it all is expectation, that, that we must pray expecting, believing that God hears us and expecting him to, to respond to our prayer. 20th century uh, theologian uh, Neubauer said this, And it's rather ironic. The world is full of half-believing unbelievers and of half-unbelieving believers. Poor faith, I think, can also refer to misdirected faith. Disciples, I think that these nine disciples, it's possible that they were treating the authority that Jesus had given them back in chapter 10 as somehow as a badge, as something that was part of their identity, something they could use when and how they they want. Folks, prayer is not magic. and 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 we've all heard, we've heard examples in our own lives and in things we've, we've been taught that, oh, if you just say this, then God's got to do that. No, he doesn't. He's God. Prayer is not magic. Years ago, we when I was pastoring at one of the churches, we, we there was a lovely man, but he had great struggles with a couple of things in his life that were causing him terrible health problems, including high blood pressure and heart trouble. And he would come almost week after week, and he'd say, please pray for me, Pastor, that I get healed of this. And I remember one day I said, you don't want prayer. You want magic because there's a cause and effect. Now, how do we apply this? The Understanding that poor faith is misdirected faith. Here's a key lesson. Folks, we must beware of becoming too confident in our own ability to minister. Believe me, it is easy to fall into. And when that happens, ministry becomes formulaic. Oh, I know how to pray for this condition. Or I know what to say here. And it's it's especially dangerous to us after we've had a bit of success. You know, that's part of the, the growing, the growth curve as people begin to step out in, in ministry, in uh, healing ministry especially, they get a little bit of success and they think, oh, I got this figured. And we don't because everything with Jesus is built upon dependency upon him, upon relationship with him, not our methodologies. So little faith not only hurts us, It hurts those who are in need of ministry. We must always stay close to him. That's why through this series, I keep taking us back to building a secret history with Jesus. The disciples state the problem. Why couldn't we heal him? Jesus gives them a solution. Truly, I tell you, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. He's not demanding great faith, only single-minded faith of a child. Trusting faith. Now, we've taught you before about rhetoric. And remember, it involves uh, often great exaggeration. Said for effect, it's meant to, to startle the listener, to, to change their perspective. Contrary to what some of you may have heard, moving mountains isn't literal. He was saying it for effect. In the first century, we know that moving mountains was proverbial saying, just as it is in our time, really, and it just means overcoming great difficulties. It's not to be taken literally. Let's look at something else, Origen said, because in this passage, he again takes us deeper. The mountains spoken of here are the hostile powers that have their being in a flood of great wickedness. Then such a man, that is a man with total faith, will say to this mountain, I mean in this case the deaf and dumb spirit in him who who is said to be epileptic, he will say, move from here to another place and it will move. This means it will move from the suffering person and be cast away into the abyss. Christostom saw this in this episode. The disciples seemed to be in anxiety and fear that they had lost the grace with which they had been entrusted. Boy, do I understand that. I can feel their pain, to quote Bill Clinton, (sighs) that they felt like, oh, no, we've lost the anointing. And so, first of all, I want you to see in the very same episode, we have a very different interpretation. One is about uh, the, the demons going into the abyss, that's the mountain, and uh, from Origin and from Christostom um, that he sees in this anxiety and fear. So I go back to a point that we've repeated several times. Do you see the richness of different interpretations? There's not one right answer. Now, the second thing I want to point out is the enemy puts this fear in us that we've we've lost uh, our anointing or it's slipping away. He puts that in us whenever we step out in faith to exercise spiritual gifts. When I stand in front of of groups of people in open air over overseas before i begin to invite them to open their hearts to the reality of christ i always had the voice you don't have it tonight they weren't paying attention to you nothing's going to happen that's how the enemy attacks us all right so so we must not live in that fear and we get, uh, we're going to move right ahead to verse 22, because many of your Bibles don't even have verse 21. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting, because it was a later edition. It's what's called an inter- interpolation. We have several of those in the Bible. It was added by someone who was writing, who, who felt like they needed to add that for emphasis. And it was added a long time later. So let's move ahead to the next section. Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection as they were traveling, a gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And they were greatly distressed. This is the second of, of three times that Jesus tells the disciples of his upcoming arrest, death, and resurrection. Hmm. To me, it's fascinating. Matthew is writing all these things, but he's weaving uh, a very holistic tapestry. He never loses sight of his overall narrative structure. So, he tells them again that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again. But the disciples, once again, do not understand or seem to even hear or acknowledge Jesus talking about his resurrection. Their thinking is completely dominated by his prediction of suffering and death, and it made them unable to think beyond this to his victory and his glory. Let's look at the last section of this chapter, verses 24 to 27. When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and says, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Peter said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their children or from others? When Peter said, From others, uh, uh, rather, uh, when Peter said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find um, a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and me. I, I want to read this. I-, I want us to read this with an awareness. Of, of Matthew's Christological implications. In other words, he's re- revealing through this more of the nature of Christ. A little background. This tax was not likely a civil tax paid to Rome. Rather, it was a tax based upon Jewish law, Exodus 30, to 16. It was an annual tax levied on every Jewish man between 20 and 50. It was the same amount regardless of how wealthy they were or were not. And it was for the upkeep of first the tabernacle, then later the temple. Jesus' question and response to Peter reveal that he did not see himself in the same relationship to the temple as other people. Just as royal sons are exempt from taxes imposed by their fathers, so Jesus is exempt from the tax, the temple tax, which is imposed by his father. So what's going on here? Matthew is once again, I think, shouting, about Jesus, his unique relationship with God the Father and therefore his unique authority as the son of God. The church fathers saw spiritual meaning in the tax and spiritual meaning in Jesus willingness to pay it. Let's look at Exodus 30:16. You shall take the atonement money from the Israelites and shall designate it for the service of the tent of meeting. Before the Lord, it will be a reminder to the Israelites of the ransom given for your lives. Another church father, Apollinaris, said this. This is brilliant. This tax of the half shekel was the law defined by Moses, who said, Each will give as redemption of his soul to the Lord a half-shekel. The half-shekel is therefore sacred, intimating nothing else than the true divine human mediator, since everything is foreshadowed in this. The giving of the half-shekel is a symbol of his self-giving, and the shekel is for the redeemed soul. So something that happened way back in Exodus was a type pointing to what Jesus was about to do. That everyone owed a debt, whether they were rich or poor, and it was it was paid the same amount to everyone. And it was for everyone. And it was when Jesus, it pointed ahead to Jesus as the mediator, the Jesus who makes everything right. This last sentence again, the giving of the half shekel is a symbol of his self-giving. He gave freely, even though he didn't have to. Right, Simon? Do the sons need to pay? No. Even though he didn't have to, he gave for uh, the shekel is for the redeemed soul. He gave of Himself to redeem, to rescue, to pay for all of humanity. Another point although He is not obliged to do so, Jesus will pay the tax so as not to offend. Jesus knows the historical religious significance of the temple is going to end within a generation, A.D. 70. When we get to chapter 24, you'll see how clear he is on that. He knows it's going to end. And the demand for the two drachma coin, the tax, is going to end with it. But that time has not yet come. A couple of things to see here. Jesus never lost sight of the long-term activity of the Father. In the midst of all that was going on, his eyes were on the Father, and he understood the long-term plan. There's a lesson here for us, especially when we're feeling anxious, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed by events, heaven's perspective. Again, John 4.35, lift up your eyes and see. Secondly, there are times when a follower of Jesus must take an unpopular stand And therefore, alienate others. However, many of the issues that we could argue or protest over are not fundamental issues. They're not worth fighting over. So, as we are in a time like never before of polarization and protest and anger, we need, as followers of the Jesus way, to ask a very honest question to ourselves— is this issue rubbing against my preferences, my opinions, or is it genuinely hurting people? See, Jesus had no trouble standing up to the temple authorities when he saw what they were doing was hurting people. He confronted them. But this wasn't hurting people. He understood what it meant, and so he participated. Let me say that again. When you are starting to feel caught up whether it's through the news or through social media or through what's been what's being talked about at the coffee room. Although there are times that we must take unpopular stands, before we do ask, is this issue rubbing against my preferences? My convenience? my opinions or is it genuinely hurting other people then he said go to the sea he said it to peter go to the sea and cast a hook take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth you will find a coin take that and give it to them uh, for you and me The temple tax, by the way, was worth about two days' wages. So it was significant, but it wasn't a huge amount. So why didn't Jesus simply tell Peter to take the money from their common purse? Christostom says this, So that in this too, he might show that he is God of all and that he rules even the sea. St. Cyril, another church father, he goes even deeper. He sees a deeper water-to-wine reading because he said, he made the miracle out of the sea so that he might teach us the mystery rich in contemplation. For we are the fish snatched from the bitter disturbances of life. It is just as if we have been caught out of the sea on the apostles' hooks. In their mouths, the fish have Christ uh, the royal the royal coin which was rendered in payment of debt for two things for our soul and for our body isn't that interesting again just contemplating and going deeper what are you saying beyond the the obvious literal and even moral reading here lord hmm isn't that interesting we are the fish you and i snatched out of the bitter disturbances of life. And when we come out, we now have Christ, the royal coin, which has been rendered in payment. So, just to conclude, Matthew's gospel takes us on the journey from the mountaintop experiences we have in Christ to the valley of finding Christ in the everyday. In the midst of this, as we've seen today, I hope, Matthew continues to take us deeper into the mystery of the incarnation, Christ fully man and fully God. And he teaches us what it means when he says, follow me, whether it's the mountaintop or whether it's the valley. In a minute or so, Tim and I are going to sit down and uh, just discuss some of what we covered today. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be
0: lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, that was really good. You pulled some stuff out of that that I never would have seen in a million years. And I've certainly, like many people, have read Matthew plenty of times. That That last bit about... Uh, the coin uh, and what you drew from that on uh, how we need to really evaluate what's worth fighting over uh, and what's worth arguing over uh, was really, really powerful. And, uh, why, so are and you know, why are we arguing?
1: And why are we arguing?
0: Indeed. Know? Um, so, I've got some questions for you. I should point out the obvious. I, we're doing things a little bit differently today. You're sitting in my usual chair. Uh, I'm sitting in my wife's usual chair. Actually, I'm sitting at my desk at home. Uh, and that's because we've got uh, uh, the COVID has finally struck the Stewart household here. Uh, yeah. We avoided it for about 18 months, but it, uh, the kids have come down with it. So, they're going to be okay. Uh, they had a few tough days of fever, but they're doing well now. So, uh, now we're just riding out our quarantine and, uh, everybody's having a quiet book reading time for half hour so I can have quiet time for recording. Um, but, uh, thanks to Isaiah for working out <clears throat> a way for us to do this. Uh, and now I know how our guests feel when they come on the podcast. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to talk a little bit about something that's very special that's coming up. A first time ever for Impact Nations is coming up in a couple of days. Uh, and so uh, before I do that, I, I think I want to just kind of remind people that right now we've actually started our Double Your Impact campaign. Uh, every year – Uh, At this time of year, at year end, uh, we uh, find ourselves with some sponsors who provide matching funds, uh, in $60,000 worth of matching funds. So every time somebody gives to our Double Your Impact campaign, that gift is doubled. Uh, And what that does is it helps impact nations get the job done. Uh, You know, throughout the year... We are often fundraising for very specific projects. Uh, And by the way, I mean, we've seen some incredible stuff this year uh, in 2021. Uh, We saw most recently, we saw another 303 children get uh, rescued out of brick factories and into schools. Uh, Earlier this year, we saw uh, 5,000 lives rescued, like literally saved uh, through the supply of oxygen at our COVID uh, oxygen relief center in India. Uh, We have seen hundreds and hundreds. I don't know what the exact number is. Isaiah and I are still trying to add it all up. Um, but I think we're, we're well over 500 graduates of our skills and business programs this year. Uh, and seeing those, those students, um, go on and either find employment almost immediately. Many of them start their own businesses, um, and others, uh, incredibly, uh, actually find themselves back at school because a lot of these, these young people that we're, we're working with, they've been out of school for years and years and, and never thought there was any way they could get back into school. Um, but because they're getting some training from us, uh, they get some basic literacy back and stuff and so they can enter back into school. So our skills and business programs have seen unprecedented, unprecedented growth again this year. Um, but all of those things, none of that's possible. Without the incredible Impact Nation's family giving, uh, it helps uh, when you give to where most needed in the W Your Impact campaign, <laughs> you're actually providing for us so that we can actually, wherever a, an immediate need pops up or if there's a shortfall in budget or something like that, we can direct those funds. So uh, one of those vocational schools actually was... Uh, by and large, funded uh, as a result of your giving last year during Double Your Impact. So it's, it's a huge difference for us. Uh, it's our biggest fundraiser of the year by far. Um, but this year, something new, something special uh, every year at Giving Tuesday, of course, uh, people uh, really spend that one day after the uh, Black Friday where you're, I don't know, battling for your life in Best Buy or Walmart uh, after Cyber Buy, Monday
1: where you're buying VCRs what, and the transistor <laughs> radios.
0: Yes, there are some great deals on VCRs this year, folks. Don't miss out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but then you got to program that sucker. Um, But, uh, and then after cyber Monday with the, uh, with the purchasing on Amazon and things like that, then comes giving Tuesday. And it's an opportunity for people to, uh, begin to direct their funds toward, um, a charitable cause. And so at impact nations, we've always done giving Tuesday last year, we raised over $18,000 on giving Tuesday, which was our biggest year ever. But, uh, I believe this year is going to be even bigger and here's why. Uh, When we began the Double Your Impact campaign, we then had another donor come to us with an idea and said, hey, uh, I'd like to pledge $10,000 in matching funds to go on top of the Double Your Impact so that on Giving Tuesday... Every dollar given is actually going to be tripled. So it's going to be doubled by the regular Double Your Impact campaign, but it's going to be doubled uh, also by, it's going to be matched as well by this other donor who's pledged $10,000. So for the first $10,000, they're actually going to multiply up to $30,000, which is huge. Uh, So I'm really, really excited about that. And I just wanted to make sure that our podcast listeners knew about that. You can head to slash Giving Tuesday to learn all about Triple Tuesday, uh, to make your gift and see. It tripled, uh, which means we're just going to rescue that many more lives in 2022. And I think that's, that's all I have terrific. to say about that. All right. <laughs> so um, let's let's jump in and forgive me. I'm I'm now multitasking on the same Zoom computer. I'm going to read some of my questions. Um, I've got I've got a question. This may seem a little bit weird, but I. I often read the the Gospels and I see these healing encounters and very often they're talking about casting out a demon. And I think, man, they seem to encounter a lot more demons back then than we do in this day and age. Um, and I wonder, this story that you told today about the healing of the, the epileptic son, it starts out with Matthew identifying the illness. This is epilepsy. And it finishes with the casting out of a demon. Uh, so... Is all healing the casting out of a demon? Uh, is it just the way that they talked about it in first centuries Palestine? Like, what's what's going on that the healing seems so often to involve casting out a demon? Because I don't think that we follow that same method when we're healing the sick on journeys of compassion, etc.
1: Yeah, we don't. Um, we certainly encounter demons, and, and whereas we do don't encounter them so much in an obvious way in the West. Um, we, as you know, we see a lot more of them when we're overseas. But I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that not all healing is demonic. Um, however, there are certain things that I think there's always profound spiritual warfare, uh, in particular, um, cancer uh, and AIDS. When we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of healing, um, we always ask the Lord, is this demonic? And in those ones, it seems to be the case. But someone who's blind or someone who's – although I did once have a, a demonic, there was no physical reason for a guy uh, in Uganda once years ago uh, to be blind. And, and yet he was because somebody doctor, witch doctor put a curse on him. But mm. um, I – and I do not know that because I was uh, very aware, I didn't happen to go into it today, but um, that it's identified as epilepsy, but he casts out a demon. You'll note that that there isn't much attention given to it, a little bit, one verse, get rid of it. Um, so the honest answer is I'm not completely sure if that was their uh, frame of reference, their worldview. Uh or if it just, there was an awful lot more of the demonic. And of course, where Jesus showed up, demons got stirred up. And this is also something that we've seen. I'm I, It used to just amaze me if I was uh, out addressing a crowd in a village while I'm preaching, how often demonic manifestations would come, which is not something that was my North American experience with only a couple of exceptions that I can remember. So, um, that's my answer, if if there's an answer in all those words.
0: <laughs> Good. Um, can we talk about the fellowship of his suffering? Uh, you know, you mentioned that, that verse in uh, Philippians is often only half quoted. Um, yep. But... Like, what's it mean to know or or to share in the fellowship of his suffering? In a 21st century context, what's the difference between just knowing him and sharing in the fellowship of his suffering? Fellowship
1: of his suffering. Well, actually, the fellowship of his suffering is uh, is a terrific name for a new church plant that really wants to attract people. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is, it is uh, Jesus suffered for the world. And he suffered with those who suffered. And um, it's part of his compassion. We've talked about his compassion. And so part of that is us. Our hearts are open enough, vulnerable enough that we suffer with those who suffer. Secondly, it is not um, allowing ourselves self-pity or persecution complex to recognize that we, when we suffer for the gospel, we're simply following him and in fact god uses it we're 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 promised that um i was i was thinking uh, earlier about colossians one twenty seven that that paul wants to present each one mature and that ties right into what he said to the romans in 8:29 that we're being conformed into his image the, the being conformed into his image includes his suffering so what it means practically is our hearts, we live with our hearts a lot more open to the suffering of others. Um, you know, I, I yesterday was out delivering some Thanksgiving meals among the poor, and uh, and it just hit my heart, just the, the day-in, day-out grind of these folks. Um, that, I trust, is the Spirit of Christ in me. So that's fellowship with suffering. And when I get purposely misunderstood, which is one that has always driven me crazy, you are twisting my words. You are purposely. And then I think, well, I'm in good company. Hmm. So that's what I think it is.
0: So what I don't hear you saying is that we should... Intentionally put ourselves into a place of suffering in terms of like the fellowship of suffering in terms of uh, empathizing and being with the poor doesn't necessarily mean that I'm doing wrong by not intentionally being poor, which I, I think that there are those who are called by the Lord to sell everything and and, and yep. you know live day to day uh, in the grind as you say, um, but for the sake of the gospel, but. That's not necessarily, we don't have to live in a way that is intentionally impoverished.
1: No, but just to recognize the suffering, because life, life's broken, right? Um, yeah. Richard Rohr says, uh, pain is the rent we pay for living. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, uh, so, we we're not just sucking it up, we're recognizing... We're walking with Jesus on this. Yeah.
0: And and walking with the poor on this. It's not r- – recognition, I, th- I think it, we need to be careful. We're not leaving it at recognition. Like, yes, I recognize <sighs> that there are people who are suffering. Uh,
1: Identifying with,
0: yeah, y- is Yeah, and, and, and being with, <clears throat> m- meeting them in that place, uh, walking with them through it, and being a part of helping to, to – walk them out of it too, which is a big part of what we do here, obviously. Um, yes. So, okay. Um, th- there's one other thing I want to touch on, and you you did touch on it, but I want to spend a little bit more time there, which is like, why, why the disciples don't remember these conversations? You pointed out, like Matthew makes it clear three times that Jesus... Gives them the full plan. Look, I'm going to... uh, This is the first time he's mentioned betrayal, but, like, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. And then on the third day, there will be resurrection. And they seem to get stuck on the first half of what's going to happen, and they clearly forget about the resurrection, because, you know, we know that on the road to Emmaus, they've completely forgotten about that bit. Uh, Why? And you touched on this a little bit. I just want you to spend a little bit more time on that. Why do you think they couldn't wrap their brains around it or they just didn't even remember that part, didn't anticipate that part. I mean, at the crucifixion, I would have thought um, that they'd be like, hey, it's cool, this is step two, but step three is coming, uh, so we don't need to be afraid.
1: Yeah, that's a terrific question that, once again, I don't have any kind of authoritative answer. I've often wondered, why is they just, it's like mass amnesia. I think that I think that there was too much transition, that the moving from the socio-political Messiah that they expected, like all Israel did, to the suffering Messiah was a huge leap. I've talked about that in two of the episodes, including today. That was a huge leap, and then to go. From the whole suffering Messiah to the glorious one, I think they got stuck because they were still processing this incredible shift of understanding uh, of who Jesus is and what he was there to do, and by implication, what they were there to proclaim. I think they got stuck. It was just, it was like whiplash. Um, I also think that there's some things that are spiritual in it that are just, sometimes God just closes our eyes. In Hmm. fact, we need God to open our eyes is what it is on different situations. How often have we gone, how come I never saw that? Hmm. Because the Holy Spirit hadn't opened their eyes yet.
0: Yeah, so this and, needs to inform our prayer life, right? Like this needs to this should be a regular part of our prayer. Like, Lord, open my eyes to see what you're doing. Open my yep. eyes to see what your plan is in this situation, what your will is in this situation, and how what your victory looks like in this situation, rather and, than getting stuck on our immediate circumstances.
1: And remember I said today that the early church had a long term view. They had they had enough post cross uh and resurrection, they had a uh Enough of an awareness of, of the fulfillment, the long-term plan, that they didn't get totally overwhelmed in the midst of terrible persecution and all this because, because they saw the long-term. They saw heaven's perspective. And uh, we need a lot more of that because um, I think we would probably not be protesting and complaining and tweeting um, about the things that perhaps we do. We we've got to have heaven's perspective, which is based on knowing the ultimate plan is is the summing up of all things in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians. Mm
0: -hmm. How do we stay there? Like, what what are some spiritual practices that we can be engaged in to make sure that we are maintaining that perspective?
1: Well, guess what I'm going to say: build a secret history. With Christ, let Him speak to you. Um, stay in the Scriptures. Stay in the uh, stay in the Gospels, especially. I know I keep saying the same thing, but I keep encountering folks, good people, love Jesus, but neither of those two elements have taken root in their life, and um, and I think that's how we become like the passage I shared from James. Uh, we get tossed around unstable because we're not rooted in our personal history with Jesus. And we're not rooted in in what the scriptures reveal of him. Mm -hmm. You know, I insist that Jesus is the word. I happen to agree with the Apostle John on that. And the scriptures point to him. The scriptures reveal him. So those are the two things that I keep saying. I've been saying them for on and off for 34 weeks, but there's no way around them. There's no way around them. Yeah. Uh,
0: one last thing before we finish, uh, because I want to bring some clarity uh, to this this warning that you had about um, the danger of formula, formulaic ministry, you know, just kind of... Yeah. Like, um, Thinking of it as magic or what have you, uh, and to to pick on you for just a second, like I, I happen to know that one of one of your main teachings that you'd be known by in Impact Nations is the the five step healing model, yep. uh, which can come across on the surface as like okay, yeah, you just do these five things and everything's hunky dory, uh, which I know isn't isn't your heart and isn't how you communicate that. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the how those sorts of things can be helpful in terms of breaking things uh, down into steps, but how I'm sure you're communicating to people on a regular basis, don't fall into the trap of just, you know, going through the motions of, you know, get these five steps down and and count on the process rather than uh, the healer.
1: Yeah, well, that's very good. Um, you're absolutely right. What I have, I have the challenge of teaching, Uh, on healing in different cultures around the world, in different Christian cultures in North America. And so what I'm trying to do is get some common language, as I usually say, so we're playing off the same scorecard, you know? And so that is why I give these five steps, because they'll give us a track to run on. But you're right. I, I try to emphasize, and maybe I need to emphasize more, these are tools. This is a track... But you've always got to be listening to the Lord. If we just had methodology, if he would let us do that, you know, we'd go into hospitals and empty hospital wards, and it would take about 1.2 seconds to think, man, I'm really anointed. Hmm. I've really got it. I've really yeah. got it. He wants us totally dependent on him. And so uh, you're right. I've got to be so careful that that's simply a track because we've got to start somewhere. But at the heart of it is not finding a formula um, that we just follow. Oh, I know what to do with this one. I know what to do with that one. Um, you know, I told that story a few weeks ago of a friend of mine who the Lord spoke to about spitting in the ground, making mud, putting on her. He yeah. says, you've got to be kidding. And he did it. And a woman's <laughs> blind eyes instantly opened. And what happened? Same to him as to all of us. Oh, now I know how to minister to blind people. And the next yeah. person just got muddy eyes. So um, <laughs> everything is about total dependence on him. The scriptures, yeah. the the New Testament, leans into Christ all the time. Dependence. I mean, we could I could go off for a while on ecclesiology and why why there's different people that are convinced in a Presbyterian or a Episcopal or congregational model they see it in the in the scriptures the same scriptures why isn't it clear do you think that god could have said okay here's how i want you to set up the church but then we would have relied on the blueprint and not oh jesus what do we do in this situation yeah so all the way through our lives he wants us dependent on him yeah and and i think that that's,
0: that was one of your points as you were talking about uh, <laughs> What Matthew's showing us about failure, you know, when the when the disciples um, can't get the healing done in this case, just to reiterate what you said, you know, you said three things. It shows us that failure doesn't disqualify us. Uh, failure is a, an opportunity for growth, and it pushes us back to the beginning, to the Beatitudes, uh, to poverty of spirit, and which yeah. presses us into Him. Uh, yeah. And I, that's that's really key. I mean, we could spend a, that'd be a whole sermon right there, but. Um, I really appreciated what you had to say about that today. So, Thanks. Well, uh, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. But thanks, uh, thanks everybody, for being flexible with me as I did it from home. Uh, and next week, um, we may have a surprise for you. Uh, we're working on something special. Um, but pretty soon, believe it or not, we'll be jumping into Matthew 18. Uh, and I know you've already started cracking the books open for that one too. So looking forward to what that chapter brings us. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, happy Thanksgiving to our American yes. listeners. And and happy Thanksgiving. Hey, to everybody else, you don't have to be an American to contemplate, to, to reflect upon, meditate upon all that we have to be thankful for, because God is so good and has just blessed us abundantly, each one of us. So, and spend some awesome, time and be thankful today.
1: You don't have to be an American to eat turkey. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to finish on a very high spiritual note.
0: (laughs) When, when, when Bethany and I were living in the Philippines, uh, they, of course, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving there, but, uh, a group of us bought a wild turkey and then (laughs) proceeded to, uh, turn the wild turkey into dinner. Uh, and I I can just say that the process of defeathering a turkey is quite unpleasant. Uh, and, (laughs) um, yeah, you don't really want to be there for that.
1: Yeah, we're not going to go any further on yeah. that.
0: Be thankful that your turkey shows up ready to go in the oven yes. when you get it from the supermarket. That's all, all right. I'm saying. All right.
1: Well, thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone. God bless you. Yep. Bye-bye. Have a good week.